0: Welcome to the Canon Law Society of America podcast, where Catholic canon lawyers share their stories, their knowledge, and their love for the law. Now, here's your host with this episode's guest canonist.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Donna Miller, your host. I'm the executive coordinator of the Canon Law Society of America. I am very excited this week to welcome our very special guest, this is our 2004 Role of Law Award recipient, Reverend William H. Westman, O.M.I. Father Westman is an oblate of Mary Immaculate, and his name and his books and his articles are known throughout the canonical world. So welcome, Father Westman.
0: Very happy to see you. Uh, I feel very honored that I'm invited to give this presentation as a former recipient of the role of law reward. I have before me uh, part of the address that I gave. It was quite short and I'm not gonna read it to you. I'm going to read just one paragraph. That will be enough. Following the footsteps of John Paul II, rather than discuss the entire spread of the law, I want to talk about who we are as canonists. That is our identity and our role in the church. First of all, we are men and women who are baptized Christians, sharing in the common priesthood of the faithful. Some of us have been called by the Lord to the ordained priesthood to serve our brothers and sisters in the church through our ordained ministry. Precisely as canonists are jurists in the church, all of us share another priesthood. That is, we are called to be to serve the Lord and our fellow Christians as servants of the law. Just as Jesus is the high priest and mediator of the new covenant, we are canon as canonists are priests and mediators of the law. As far-fetched as this may sound, there is something, a strong foundation for stating that we are all canonists or priests of the law, precisely canon law with all that it implies. In 1934, Pope Pius XI issued the Constitution of incrementum governing the privileges in certain, of certain prelates the various dicasteries of the Roman Curia. In the second period, he spoke of the auditor prelates of the Roman Rhoda with the words, quote, "'Eurus tende Munis, etidem Nobilisum est Sacerdotum'," translated, whose office is, in like manner, the most noble priesthood. That's, that's who you we are, we've been called by God this location is something. You know, I have realized much more since I've been working as a candidate here in Chicago. I've been here almost 20 years. Instead of retiring, fortunately, at 70, when I was too old for the university, uh, I was offered a position here uh, by the uh, late Cardinal George and Pat Logus all the members know very well to be here. I am a promoter of justice of the tribunal, uh, also defender of the bond for most English speaking cases, and uh, also an associate Episcopal vicar so that I can give the dispensations that are needed when the other people aren't there. When will I retire? I'm in no hurry.
1: Father Westman, that's a great way to start. That paragraph when I read your rule of law response was one that I had picked out as one that I was going to talk to you about during this podcast. So, But let's back up for just a minute. You Just before we started this broadcast, you were telling me that today when we're recording this, July 8th, is like a double anniversary for you. Tell us about that.
0: Yes. I was ordained a priest on July 8th. 1956 in the parish church of Our Lady of the Assumption in Roviano province of Rome, Italy. Just a block or so from our summer place where we spent I spent six summers. And mm-hmm. also after I finished my doctorate in canon law in Rome, uh, There was nothing immediate for me to do, and I took the opportunity of taking uh, the course at the Studio Rotale, the Studium Romani Rote, in which the professors are the rota judges or other officials at the tribunal. And it terminates after three years. You have class two days a week for eight months, in which you're given cases that you are to Right. At my time, the lectures were in Latin. Among the uh, lectures was uh, the future Cardinal Egan of New York, uh, Cardinal Pompeyda, who was uh, later head of the Signatura Apostolica. And at the end, we had a final exam. We were given a case, and we could have the Code of Canon Law, a dictionary if we wanted, and we had. 12 hours to complete our case and And how did you do I survived (laughs) I went on my vacation to visit family and the Oblates in Germany and when I came back I went to the uh, copies of the Obsorito Romano to find out where they published those who successfully took the exam and I found my name listed there
1: that was in 1986 I take it
0: 1986 Uh, That was uh,
1: thirty 34th anniversary. So how did a country boy from Arkansas become an oblate of Mary Immaculate?
0: Okay, my parents were very devout Catholics and my mother was an orphan girl from Chicago her mother who had died six months after she was born her father was died in a railway accident in California was raised by a great aunt who had invited my grandmother to come to the U.S. She and her husband, who was part of her family, had moved to Arkansas. And I don't know why they moved. I think it was partially because they didn't want to raise their boys in the wild city of Chicago. Chicago was, not, was very prosperous, but it wasn't paradise even then. So my mother grew up there, a little Irish Catholic girl in a German Protestant area. Uh, they were Germans, everybody else was uh, was German of the Catholics, my mother was Irish. And uh, then she, well, she grew up, she moved to Fort Smith to get a job. Fort Smith, Arkansas is about 50, 60 miles away. And she met my dad. The rest is history. They got married. And when they had four children, or no, three children, one on the way, my dad saw an opportunity to improve himself. The job he had there was no future to it. So he went, decided to go to Carthage where he'd been offered a job. And so they moved there. After that, this is Carthage, Missouri, is what is called, at least at that time, the Bible Belt. There were only uh, a hundred so Catholics in a town of between eight or nine thousand people. Then the Oblets of Mary Immaculate came and bought uh, a vacant college building, a beautiful building that still exists uh, for a minor seminary. My dad went out to see the priests and said, "Look." I would like for you to have, except my boy, to go here to high school, although he's not studying for the priesthood. And they said, yes. And I could walk or take my bike to school. It was only, you know, 10 minutes away. So, and I decided with God's grace to become an oblate. I then did my novitiate in Godfrey, Illinois, property that we later sold, It was decided among other students that I would go to Rome for philosophy and theology. Don't think that I was that great a student because our provincial had a lot of students from the priesthood at that time, and it cost less to send people to Rome to study than anywhere else. So I was one of the... At that time, we had as many as... Ten students from my province and studying in Rome, my 30th grade where I did philosophy and theology, came back and taught in our Scholasticate, which was then a hotel, a former hotel, down in, on the Bay St. Louis, just adjoining the Gulf Coast. I taught there eight years until the school closed. I went to Nebraska, where I was uh, assistant pastor uh, and went in charge of two country missions, and then I became pastor. And then, much to my surprise, the provincial decided that I should be director of the Shrine of Idea of the Snows, uh, which some of you may have heard of. These were troubled times, especially financially. So I was there. I was made a member of the Provincial Council. Uh, we chose, our Provincials were chosen by consultation. In our province it's always been, started after the Council, you have a straw vote. The votes are published and then everyone sends a secret ballot to the Superior General and then he is free to name someone. So. Father, the new provincial was a young priest, I think he was 38 at the time, by the name of Francis George, and uh, I was very happy about that. Two years later, our superior general resigned, and I was elected as a member to the general chapter. And during the chapter, Father George was elected vicar general so he was to stay in Rome. First day I felt like crying for him. The next day I felt like crying for myself because since I had been the second in line, there was the real danger that I would be named provincial, which happened. So after six years, two terms, I went to Rome. Father George was still vicar general and they were looking for the future, and I had always enjoyed canon law. And he asked me if I would accept to study canon law, and I said fine. He says fine. I'll talk to Father General. So the General invited me to come to Rome and gave me uh, two minor jobs, and with, uh, I, with the possibility of studying canon law on the side, I accepted. I uh, at that time, I was 25 years a priest. I began my studies in canon law, and I chose the Angelicum. And I must say, for a reason that was not very canonical. It was, they had classes four days a week, whereas the Gregorian had classes five days a week. And at my age, it was much easier going to the Angelicum rather than the Greg. I was happy I made a decision I was very pleased with the education I was given by the Dominican Fathers. Oh, uh, on my path, our first semester, the Dean, Father Gengoye, a Spanish-Dominican, came and says, look, you people have to write two seminar papers, and I suggest that if you're thinking about doing the doctorate, that you choose something that you could expand, so if you've done good, well on the road for your doctorate. So I came back home and I told that to Father O'Reilly, a, a man who taught canon law since his ordination at 23. A very, very good canonist. And he says, well, you know, Frank Morris, is here, professor from Ottawa, why don't you ask him? So after breakfast one morning, I, was ready to go to university and I saw Frank I said, Father O'Reilly said, it would be a good idea to talk to you about doing a doctoral thesis. And he said, well, write something on the Oblates and the uh, position of the brothers in our congregation. So I took that and I finished, Uh, I was fortunate. I uh, was prepared because I loved the history of the congregation. We had, I could use the archives and the, the library at the General House. And I finished my doctorate in three years, one month, and one week's time. And I had asked the Superior General, Should I get a doctorate in theology? He said, No. Why don't you get to save for the thing for the Rota, become a Rota advocate? So I did that. So then I went to Ottawa. I got there. These were, I didn't realize at the time, we were still in troubled times. The new code was promulgated in 1983 while I was studying. We studied of course from the old code, but we all had drafts of the new code which had not been promulgated. I was able to be present when we had the official promulgation of the code by John Paul II. Came back, I got to Ottawa, and I found that the practice there was to give class notes to the students. So that got me started. I uh, had permission to buy a computer. Now personal computers in 1980, what's this, where are we, 1987, were rather new things. So I bought one with, and the next year, the second year started writing class notes and write two or three pages a day and have them photocopied and pass out to the students. And that began my publication of stuff. The first book that I published was uh, Special Marriage Cases. First two publishing houses I went to One of them turned me down, the other wanted to change it. I knew he was wrong. I talked to the dean, uh, Father John Tom Thorne, and he says, well, why don't we do it? So the university published it, and the first edition sold out in one year, and we published a second. And then I began to publish my other notes. So one of the consolations to me is I have found out my notes, which became my books, are well known. I've had a bishop or a visiting archbishop from Lithuania who was in the house here in Chicago and at breakfast he turned to me, what's your first name? And I told him, he says, oh I use your books all the time.
1: So he gave you a little affirmation there.
0: Yes, <laughs> so I am presently, in spite of my 90 plus years, working on two books, three. The most important one is uh, a handbook for canonists. I started out this I said, when you start studying canon law, and I suppose it's like any other uh, discipline, they throw words at you and they don't take the time to explain all what the words mean, you have to find out yourself. So the main part of this book is a, a glossary of 300 terms. Uh, several years ago I had done had a good start on it and I shared it with Frank Morrissey for suggestions and Four days later, he had gone through the whole thing with some valuable corrections and suggestions. And as I went along, I realized, you know, I need some assistance. So fortunately, I asked Father Wachek Koval, who's a professor in Ottawa, if he would cooperate to be co-author. And he suggested out hesitation that he would. So we've been working together now, but he's working on now. If all goes well, we'll finish this year. This will be about a 400 page book that we will share with our fellow candidates.
1: That will be invaluable. I can tell you probably every candidate in the world, plus every student, you're, you'll have a, you have a little gold mine there on your hands. <laughs> Now, you mentioned those current projects and other things that have gone on. So, is there relaxation, or do you really constantly think of canon law theology? Well, I must
0: say that I've, I've slowed down,
1: <laughs>
0: and I don't feel guilty about it. No. Right now, because of the present environment, our office is closed, but I get Defender of the Bond cases for marriage, for marriage cases. I don't have... I'm, I'm, not busy all the time, and I work on this. I'm working on bringing up to date uh, my book on papal allocutions to the Roman rota. And as I look back and see, there's nothing original here by me. And fortunately, today you can get them all online. But I think it's still valuable to have a book in your hand which you can look. See the wisdom of the popes and the probably the people at the Rhoda who assist him in writing these various allocutions from the time of Pius the 11th, excuse me, Pius the 12th to Pope Francis. So I'm working on that now. I hope to have that done within a few months. The one other project, one of the last courses I taught in Ottawa was uh, Associations of the Faithful. And i am updating that, that will be a short book, but the valuable thing with it will not be something from me, but uh, samples of the decrees of erecting various associations of the faithful, both of, uh, for the laity and for religious.
1: Let me ask you a question about when Monsignor Mark Bartczak, introduced you the night you won the Rule of Law Award. In his uh, explanation, he mentioned that you were appointed to the Congregation for the Evangelization of the Peoples by John Paul II, and you served as a consultor for about eight years. What did that entail?
0: I was consulted once. Oh. <laughs> it was very, uh, I appreciated having my name in the honorario of pontificio, but this happened. One of our priest, uh, a great canonist, Father Amon Breuter, a German priest who had three earned doctorates, theology, canon law and uh, civil law. Uh, he was a consultor for uh, Roman congregations and uh, he was asked by the Congregation Evangelization of the Faithful to uh, propose a couple of people to be consultors, and he proposed my name. So I was accepted, and I was given one thing to say, it was uh, write my remarks, and uh, they didn't need me after that, shortly after I went to Canada, so I wrote, you know, resigned. And still had my name in the, the book for a couple more years.
1: Well it looks good on paper then, huh?
0: <laughs> yes, it you know, but you have to good degree of humility take it for what it really was. So you know, he did a lot of work. He revised his father Reuter uh, constitutions for religious sisters and statutes for bishops and so forth. He
1: Monsignor Barczyk also mentioned that you were a professor, now I don't know if you taught these at the same time, professor of Moral Theology and Canon Law at the Alblade Scholastic and in Past Christian, Mississippi. Did you teach Canon Law and theo- Moral Theology at the same time?
0: Yes. <laughs> you know, at that time, they were connected. So I, 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 first of all, I taught Moral Theology. And I was given a textbook, which I didn't like, but I had to use it. And then the professor who taught Canon Law, the other priest, who had written a lot, left, and so I inherited teaching canon law. And I enjoyed it. I was happy. And the we merged our school with the one in San Antonio, which is the, uh, the School of Theology in San Antonio, which has existed over 100 years and doing quite well.
1: I didn't realize it was that, had that much longevity to it, which is that's fantastic.
0: I knew some one of my one of the an old priests, he's younger than I am now, Father Eckers, from Germany, with three other classics from Germany, were sent there to start help start the school as students. And mm. so this was in early 1900s when he, he went
1: now. I'm also looking at, at everything that you've written on. You've written on marital, marriage jurisprudence and procedures, sacraments, clergy issues, penalties. And then it goes on to talk about um, when the around 2001 or so, when the charter and the norms came out and then you offered assistance in educating and advising bishops and canonists and religious and penal law. Penal law was not as popular a subject before then, was it?
0: No, at that time. The course was cut down to one semester hour. You'll never use this, unfortunately. Canons need it very much. So I, uh, I, I took my use of course. I took the code and I commented on it, and it has been, the book has become well used by many people. What a thing I've enjoyed most as a canonist is being involved. In canonization. That's the course I took, you know, thinking I would never need it. You had to take it. Mm -hmm. I got involved with the miracles for St. Margaret Duville, of the Grey Nuns of uh, um, Montreal. And uh, I was asked to be a promoter of justice for two miracles through her intercession one of them was accepted. And uh, this is a very rewarding experience. Um, I've often said, when you do marriage cases, you have to work on what is, where God's grace did not succeed. You do canonization, you do things where God's grace worked. My most recent experience was for the miracle for the canonization of St. John Henry Newman. A woman who had been member of the Cathedral Parish uh, had developed over the years a devotion to John Henry Newman. I didn't know her. If you look on the website for the Oratory of Birmingham, you will find her giving her presentation. She was from Forrest, Missouri. Uh, suburb of St. Louis, and she went to Washington U, and she met her future husband there. It's not, Washington U is a top-notch university, but you don't expect two Catholics to meet there. Her future husband was, I think, from El Paso, Texas, you know, Hispanic, and she was this Catholic girl. They became acquainted, and they moved to Chicago. Uh, she works for a major investment firm, and she uh, studied law at Northwestern Law School, which is just a few blocks away. And her first child was born here, and she now has, was it eight children, I think. All of them were baptized here at Saint uh, at Holy Name Cathedral. But anyway, uh, when she was pregnant with her fifth child, uh, she uh, was in real danger of losing the baby. And she had developed this devotion to uh, Cardinal Newman, and she was killed, and it was accepted as a miracle. I worked on the cause of Father uh, uh, Tolton, whom we hope will be beatified, the first accepted black priest in the U.S.
1: Uh, those must be well, fascinating to work on. Do you talk with family members? What goes into those investigations?
0: It, well, it depends, you know, for his case, of course, all this was an ancient cause. So there are no people alive who, who knew him. You visit you, people who studied him. You get witnesses. of it. It's on his it's a historical cause of life and reputation. So I've been a real privilege.
1: That's fascinating. And you've written. Did, did you not write a book on...
0: Well, it I wrote the with- book, yeah. Well, that's, I was the editor. There's nothing in English on it. So I uh, put together stuff, got things from one of our priests, Father uh, Baudouin, who was, uh, worked at the Congregation of Saints for years, his, his notes on the history of canonization, he gave them to me, and Monsignor Sarno, who was an official of the congregation. Uh, he wrote uh, a commentary on the norms for following, and he gave them to me, allow me to trans- have them translated. And so I put all this stuff together with examples, with forums and so forth. So if someone wants to make a saint, they can take the book and follow it.
1: There aren't many areas of the code that you haven't, had an opportunity to either teach or write about, are there?
0: No. (laughs) No, it's been a very rich life.
1: So tell me about your experience then with CLSA. Have you enjoyed getting to know other canonists?
0: For me, I would contribute over the years to uh, CLSA advisory. Roman replies in CLSA advisory opinions. And uh, I was told that they what I would contribute was appreciated. So when an idea would come up, I would write it and send it to them. I have one in mind now, if maybe it's too late, but I will send it in.
1: Please do. Yes, absolutely. I know I've used some of yours in the past also. And and would you encourage young canonists to use that as a method of evaluating their thought process and putting opinions out there?
0: And they see, you know, issues that the canonists confront in their day-to-day usage you know one of the things you know i taught for 14 years at st paul university it's a very practical school when people finish there they can go to work it's not theoretical you studied there you
1: i did that's my alma mater for canon law absolutely so i know i know professor Kowal. He was my JCL thesis director.
0: Uh-huh. I don't know if he's right or not, but he said nice things about you. Uh,
1: I don't know if he's right or not either then. <laughs> when we went to our Rome trip, we st- we were able to visit your general aid. Uh-huh. And we had a little dinner on the top of the roof. Got to look out over uh, the Open view city. from there.
0: You looked down on St. Peter's.
1: Yes, it was uh-huh. lovely, lovely.
0: St. Paul University got ahead of the game a few years ago when they started having distance learning. Mm-hmm. And everybody's doing it today because of the virus claim. And this has been a good thing for the university. Father Koval taught recently a course on religious law and he had over 80 students. I think it was 80, maybe it was 60. Some of them present, some of them at a distance. This last week, he gave comprehensive exams. The Internet, you can do these things that no one could have thought of 50 years ago.
1: Even you and I today using Skype here to uh, to yeah. do this interview or to do this little conversation is, is something we wouldn't have thought of in that capacity. Like you said, in the 80s, when we barely had computers, here we are 30 years later and you know, talking it had- if it hadn't
0: been for computers, I would have never published anything. Absolutely. Your suggestion you said, funny stories. I have two stories as a teacher. Oh, good. Okay. One of them was, we had a, a priest from Memphis who's now gone to his eternal reward. He had uh, was a civil lawyer, studied theology, was ordained a deacon, and... He had questions about whether he should go on to the priesthood. So his bishop says, okay, fine. Don't go to ordination. Just work as a lawyer. You can't even function as a deacon. I don't think the deacon could have told him that now. But anyway, he said in one of the cases, I don't know how it came up in class. He had this case that at that time would have been more rare of, two lesbians were breaking up. They weren't married. And he says, he was helping them to just settle their financial things. And he said, finally got to the stage, they agreed on everything except who would get the dog. So he says, finally, I said, damn it. He says, I'll buy you another dog. (laughs) The other case we must've been talking about sacrament of communion of receiving the Eucharist and a priest from England in class stuck up his hand and he said you know we were having first communion at my parish and this girl came up the aisle to receive first communion and she had lights electric lights in her communion veil and as she Reveal, received First Communion, her grandmother sh- turned the switch to turn the lights on. I says, oh, the stayed British. He says, no, they were Italian. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, nothing like being the center of attention. Yes. <laughs> so what advice do you have for anybody considering starting, just starting out in canon law, if they're even thinking about it?
0: I would say, read the Roman, the, the uh, allocutions in the Roman Rota, you find out the books. And a very important thing is how it's really pastoral. It's not theory. You're helping people live their life, and you're, you're seeking not law, but you're seeking how law can aid people to find the truth so that they can live their Christian life.
1: I think that's one of the threads that runs through almost every one of you who are rule of law award winners that I've talked to. All of you have that knowledge that it's not about law and just black letters on paper. It's all about people of God and how the law can can facilitate their relationship with God.
0: Many a day I end up almost crying when I read some marriage cases. Most of the time it's because the people, to be very honest about it, were stupid when they got married. They shouldn't have married. No one can tell them because they're in love. We've all heard the expression that love is blind, and they were blind. If we can help these people straighten out their lives, that's a great gift from God.
1: Amen. So... Do you have any, um, anything else you'd like to say to the members of the Canon Law Society of America before we depart?
0: No. Love the church, help the people, and the Lord will bless you.
1: Well, Father Westman, it's been a, a great pleasure in the preparation that we did up for this podcast and having a chance today to talk to you.
0: Okay, very good. It's been a real pleasure. <laughs>